Hello friends, this is a content warning. This episode discusses sexual violence and eating disorders. If you ever have thoughts or questions about what you hear on Rearview, please reach out to us. Until then, enjoy the story and thanks for listening. Yeah, I got to the point where I was like, this is going to keep happening. And then I was thinking people must not know. If the people who had the ability to change things knew, it would be different. Welcome to Rearview, the podcast that brings you stories larger than they appear, the stories we look back on to move forward. In each episode, an anonymous storyteller reflects on small moments from their life that unfold into big narratives, exploring the way that our most minute and intimate memories end up being some of the biggest things we think about. How conscious are you of the small-scale cultures that you navigate? The culture of a workplace, a school, a team, a family, of any given institution or group of people. These cultures silently perpetuate norms, often invisible until someone steps up to talk about them. This time on Rearview, we hear from a storyteller who began to notice, and physically feel, how two different cultures she was a part of were changing, or on the contrary, remaining dangerously static. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the story. So going into college, going in as a collegiate athlete, I was very excited. I was just very confident in my ability to navigate challenges related to athletics. And in this case, I was a track athlete, so running. And then going into a place where fraternities were a thing, I guess also excitement. I hadn't thought about it too much. It didn't feel very relevant, but frats were a really fun place to go. And I really liked to dance. So, yeah, I liked having a centralized location, see more people you know. You know, I I was a virgin, I'd never had sex before, and I was, like, very aware and very comfortable with the fact that that wasn't on the horizon for me. I just had this visceral feeling that I couldn't even imagine when I'd be comfortable to do that. So, freshman year, there was someone who was somewhat in a position, I guess, of authority, not team or frat related and I remember very early on in the semester I was with a friend and he I don't know made his presence known like said hello it was a check-in or something and after he left me and my friend both looked at each other and we were like he's so cool like like so fun that this person is involved in my life and so I went to um, a frat party one night and I remember that there was a big handle of vodka next to the jungle juice and we were freshmen. And we were like, that's so sweet that they didn't put the alcohol in the jungle juice. Like, you can decide for yourself how much alcohol to put in it. Obviously, that was not accurate. There was alcohol in the jungle juice. And I was much more inebriated than was responsible that night, unaware. And my friend sort of passed me off to this person that we had met before because he seemed responsible and he was willing to help and he was not, he had not been juggling the jungle juice the way that I had. So he brought me back to my room and I was clearly not in good shape. And 
you know, this was early in my semester. I'm still a virgin. I'm still very much not thinking that sex is on the horizon for me. And, you know, I don't have super clear memories on how much of that I communicated to him. But that night was the first time that I had a sexual encounter. I guess the reason that all this time I've hesitated to label it as something like a rape is because I feel like he understood at some point while it was happening that it shouldn't be happening and he he stopped. And I don't remember physically struggling and I, I definitely remember saying no, but it wasn't it could it could have been more forceful on my part but later on in the year the university started getting media attention and increasing pressure to address rape culture fostered around and within frats so then i had this i think pretty unique experience of of being present on campus as fraternities were shut down by the university administration yeah and for the next year i was somewhat vocal in a stance that I think by any superficial interpretation would have suggested that I had not been impacted by rape culture. But I had this attitude that people and not institutions should be held responsible for, you know, egregious and violent acts. So I took issue with the fact that, you know, the school was taking this measure to protect its students. Maybe it's the way, you know, we're taught in school. It's always individual actions. It's always no one's responsible for you but yourself. I guess I had internalized that to the point where as someone who had experienced a rape, I was not supportive of administrative changes to try and address rape culture. You know, now years out of college, like I do have an understanding of how individual actions, it's not as simple as that. We're all impacted by, you know, the cultures that we grew up in, the societies that we're in. Yeah, I look back and, like, I think about standing up to the administration, trying to set down fats, and, like, that's embarrassing to me. You know, the school had really stepped up and, I think, did what a school is supposed to do, is, you know, make difficult decisions in the interest of its students. You know, I was present for the, I guess, phasing out, and I just noticed my junior year, that interacting with freshmen and sophomore boys while I was out, they were so much more interesting to talk to. They were so much nicer. You know, at the time, I didn't fully realize what was happening. I I, I don't have the power to say those things are correlated, but it's pretty stark, the dramatic change in personalities and experiences that I had with athletes that typically would have gone into one of these three frats and I didn't really have an aha moment until after I graduated and I was on campus I ended up hooking up with someone who's quite a bit younger than me who was an athlete and he had asked for my consent but I didn't even realize that was happening and I thought he was talking dirty to me I think he was like do you want me to fuck you and I was just like bold and then I remember after we had sex I was like, it's so funny that you said that. And he was like, so offended. And he just looked at me and he was like, that was consent. And I was like, oh. So I just remember that was just such a stark contrast from anything I'd previously experienced. And I remember like in that moment being like, wow, administrative changes are tangible here. I really think it changed the way people conducted themselves.
Yeah, I guess the team things were really intense, which I was keen on when I arrived. And I remember the first practice, it was supposed to be a slightly longer run, but it was the first day of practice. I kind of thought we were going to run together and there were so many new people. And I remember literally thinking it was a joke when people started running, which is how fast they took off sprinting. Like, I thought it was a prank. Yeah, that was the first time I was like, okay, collegiate running. It's a little more intense. And I did relatively well my first year, but the spring track season, every single meet, I felt so sick before and I would throw up. That's a relatively common experience and reaction that people have to racing, but it had never happened to me before. I'd raced all throughout high school. I'd already had two collegiate seasons. And then for some reason, like this season, without fail, every single race, I would just feel so sick and throw up. And then it never happened again. I remember talking to my dad about it. I remember talking to the trainers about it. And people were like, you must be nervous. And I was like, I don't feel nervous to race. And I'm looking back now and I'm realizing I was just scared of what my race times would imply for my staying on the team. Before... You know, the only person who's going to be mad at me if it didn't go well was myself. You know, like no one's going to be more mad at me than me. And I guess over my first year, I realized that wasn't true. And, you know, if people weren't mad at me, then maybe they would respect me less and they would make it really obvious. There wouldn't be any holding back. I think it was that a lot of the people on the team, including myself, had built their identity around running. This became like so central to how I think teammates saw themselves and how they were vocal about how they saw each other that yeah your value as a person on a team just became how intense are you about running that was the end of my freshman year I guess when my relationship with racing and running was changing a little bit because I used to love it so much I used to never hold back when I raced and I just started being so scared where I would hold back it was really unsatisfying it was very difficult for something that I had this long-standing relationship that I'd always gotten internal strength from and felt proud of sort of shifting and not fully understanding and feeling like it was a personal moral failure. One year later was when, you know, after watching various of my teammates being told the same thing, I was told that my success was contingent on my ability to rapidly lose weight you know I'm seeing like the throwing up is like a warning sign that my body was trying to tell me like this environment wasn't healthy and it was good you know it was toxic so I received a conversation at the very end of my sophomore year like right before breaking for summer and restricting was something that was very easy for me to do I think it's the same mentality as being intense about running you just find pride and digging deep and seeing results and the first like five to ten pounds I took off happened so fast and it was so easy and I just remember being like hell yeah I did it and I can do anything and then you know I'd been requested for 15 and that's sort of where I got into trouble where the next five just wasn't happening there was like a few times where I threw up on purpose because mostly I avoided eating as much as I could but there's only so much you can do to avoid it. Yeah, so those times where I tried to erase meals, it didn't 
feel like a pattern. It felt like a few isolated incidents and that I was just dealing with the consequences. It's like, oh, like you literally went to a barbecue tonight and like, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Here is something that sucks to do, but like you're going to do it and you're going to like rectify your mistake. I would say that sort of changed when I went back to school, just being back with the team again. And yeah, just feeling like these were like the people who I was supposed to be close to and have understand me and have my back and just feeling like there was nothing I could do to have that community unless I was faster and I'd already been explicitly told that that wasn't going to happen until I lost this concrete amount of weight. I just remember constantly looking around me and seeing people who weren't on the team and then making friends through, I don't know, their halls or their classes. I don't know how I'm just being like in awe and being so grateful that I didn't have to do that. Just being like, I physically don't think I could just make friends. And that's what the team had given me. You know, avoiding meals isn't really something that felt like an option for me at school because people would notice. So then it became sort of a given planned out routine. So I guess it evolved from being like, this is a very isolated thing, nothing to worry about, to like, this is part of my day, nothing to worry about. Which doesn't make sense. Like, I'm I'm aware of that. But there wasn't a point in which I was like, this is a disorder. This is self-harm. I mean, I guess I knew that. I didn't, I didn't want people to know. But other than that, like, I don't think there was very much internal acknowledgement that what I was doing was wrong. But I think that something else in terms of cognitive dissonance between my situation and my environment was I would, I mean, I don't want to say consistently, but regularly enough would participate in shit-talking my teammates and their eating behaviors and habits and never occurred to me how harmful that is within the context of eating disorders and running. And I never related that to my own struggles. And it's not like I was only restrictive at that point. At that point, I was actively throwing up. I was actively being sneaky and planning it out because I was always surrounded by people. And even then, there was just a complete disconnect. I mostly stopped because it wasn't working. A year and a half later, I was like, wow, I slower than I ever was. <laughs> I give up now. <laughs> After I graduated, it's kind of comical because it feels like it was this binary switch. But I just felt like I had woken up from a nightmare. It was this very interesting thing where I had been conditioned for so long to be so scared and like at every single moment in my mind like thinking about how big I look and like what I've eaten and what I'm eating next and how that's going to shape my life and you know naturally when you go from restricting and running 50 miles a week to not restricting and not running 50 miles a week your body changes in a way that reflects some of your deepest fears so I think that new way of thinking like the kind of conflicting like I'm so happy that I'm free this is really hard for me to watch myself gain weight but I'm also like way happier than I've ever been that was sort of what made me think about the fact that I had an eating disorder before I think that was when I was like why do you feel this profound sense of freedom which I felt immediately and why does that outweigh your fear because it did I think that's when I was like hmm Something not right was happening here.
I was doing a master's degree after I graduated. I was still on campus, still in contact with people on the team and kept hearing about horrifying things. I was not part of it, you know, I was not scrutinizing their eating habits, but I was so close and I still loved, you know, these girls and I spent time with them. And I think a lot of times with women, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but this has been my experience and I've, you know, heard similar sentiments expressed to me by my female friends is that it's hard to recognize things that have happened to you and like, I guess, wrongdoing especially. But as soon as you see in your, your friend, you're not cool with it and you are ready to highlight it for the justice that it is. Yeah, I got to the point where I was like, this is going to keep happening. And then I was thinking people must not know if the people who had the ability to change things knew, it would be different. Like the limiting factor here is that people don't know. And that was not true. I met with two administrators, specifically, you know, went through a list of administrators and picked the women and emailed them. And I met with these two women for, you know, two hours and literally just word vomited, <laughs> told them everything. And I remember them looking at me being like, you know, we just want you to know that, you know, you're coming here has made a difference. This means something. And I remember being like, okay, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. I had like this original list of demands. Two things. The first one was there should be uniforms available and bigger than size small because there weren't. And then the other demand was there should just be some relationship established between an administrator and the woman on the cross-country team so that if they ever did need to talk, that relationship was always there. It's very difficult to seek out a relationship in, in times of challenge. Like that should be established before it's necessary. And that was literally all I asked for. And they just ignored me. So, I mean, I wasn't sure what I had wanted to do at that point, but I was very sure that I had to do something. I mean, yeah, it was something that was weighing on me every day. Like, like in grad school, we have this student seminar every Wednesday during lunch. That's really fun. And often they would have pasta and I would sit in the seminar and I'd be trying to eat my lunch, my free lunch. And I would always be like intensely uncomfortable. I was like, did I forget how to use a fork? Am I struggling to swirl the spaghetti? Am I really like nervous eating in front of people? And it was like a year of this. And then I was like, I still can't enjoy pasta because I still like have it deeply rooted in me that like that's not something we're supposed to go near. And it's wild to me that I was like considering, even at that point, when I'd already been to the administration to be like, they're eating disorders, I've had an eating disorder. Even at that point, I'm like struggling to eat this food, which I was explicitly told not to by, you know, my coach. And I'm just like still exploring every other possibility, including I don't know how to use a plastic fork. <laughs> I mean, like, that's just a very small example of how it's still with me. But, like, you know, I just, like, thought about it all the time. And I was like, I don't want to just think about this anymore. Like, I don't want to feel like I did what I could. There's there's more. And I didn't know what it was. And I started calling up a few teammates that I wasn't, had not been in touch with and had definitely kind of gone through way too much with. And I would call and I'd just be like, this is on my mind. This was my experience. I kind of feel like you had a similar one. I don't know because we never talked about it, but like, what do you think? Everyone I talked to was like super receptive, was very open about their own experience. And it was very much like, I don't know what we're going to do either, but like, I'm with you. So I started reaching out to people and then I started writing. And finally, with some help of teammates, we started sending it out, talking to old teammates about it, saying that we've written this thing to address this problem. 
we've drafted up these demands for administrative changes we would like to see. Do any of you have input? Do any of you want to add anything? Do any of you want to share? And yeah, just totally mind blown by the way that people stepped up and responded and were vulnerable. I think on its own, what I wrote would have been nothing. So I was really, really grateful and impressed that people were willing to do that. We have not seen the administrative changes that we wanted. We absolutely have not succeeded in that regard. But the way that I think we have succeeded is that people are talking about this on our team, which is, I don't want to say all it would have taken to save me, but it may have been all it would have taken. And then people are talking about it at other schools. And, you know, if we can't trust the people who should be trusted to protect, then I think we can do it ourselves. And I think we have been doing it. At least for me, I really feel that by talking about it and like talking to old teammates about it, I do feel like I've healed in a way that I never really imagined for myself. Like I kind of thought this is something that was gonna hurt forever. I think there's enormous value in just showing yourself and those around you kindness with these very confusing and very painful experiences. You know, a lot of people have, have expressed appreciation for some of the efforts that I've put into drawing attention to the prevalence of eating disorders and running. But I think, yeah, if I'm being honest, a lot of it stems just from this like overwhelming guilt of being an active participant and bystander. I know that I made it worse for some people. Like the people I know on the team who have really hurt me and who I have really hurt, I don't believe that that's who we are in the same way, kind of like how I noticed that the frat guys were getting way more interesting and respectful and nice. And I do think it just takes some leadership and education, education on rape culture, education on women's health and sports. It's like sort of this new grief, grieving the experience we could have had and then like the friendships and the person we could have been. Like I could have been someone, I could have been someone who was a more supportive teammate. Because I'm currently in academia and I'm a grad student in like the health sciences, the thing that also like fueled my anger and added to my sense of loss that this could have been prevented and that this is not the way that things had to be was just reading all the literature out there. There's not nearly enough research about women in sports, like women's physiology, but there's enough out there where it's inexcusable for that information not to be incorporated with the people who are in charge of students' athletic programs. I hold it against myself that like I didn't look for that sooner, but the fact that there's adults around who didn't think to ask, who didn't think to look it up, that was unacceptable to me. Because a lot of people look at the story and they're like, oh, like that must have been traumatic and, you know, that's sad. And I feel that way, but for me, like the the biggest thing is that it's medical misinformation. All the evidence out there points against the way that we were handled as developing women in sports. Like there was no reason that I should have fractured my femur and assumed that it was because I was too heavy. And there was no reason that that should have been allowed to happen. We were repeatedly told 
that injuries were 90% of the time due to excess weight. Sort of this uninformed, either intentionally or unintentionally, attitude towards women's health in sports. It's sort of something that we can endlessly zoom out on. Just society's approach to um, women's health. Yeah, very salient example that I think people have heard and are comfortable with in terms of biological research being leveraged for problems dealing with men's sexual performance. You know, man has um, erectile dysfunction. He's going to find a solution. That's, that's been quenched. But postpartum depression is wildly common and menstrual pain is wildly common. The biology is not being used to leverage or address or talk about any of those issues. I don't know, there's like people out there who spend their lives understanding these phenomena, publishing their results, disseminating their findings so that they can be incorporated into policies, applied to improve people's lives, and administrative people are the ones who are responsible, I think, for being aware of evidence there is sort of this onus on the institution where like as people are going through these formative years they're not going to see the world clearly yet that's the whole point is that we're supposed to be learning and we're supposed to be changing and that should just be supported so that it can happen in a healthy way i think the unifying theme between my experience with rape culture and the pervasive presence of eating disorders in athletes is that first my experience is really quite ordinary and that reality gets suppressed by lack of conversations. And in turn, I think something that pretty substantially contributes to the lack of conversation is how challenging it is for people who have experienced these things to privately acknowledge it. It's hard to talk about something that your mind or body rejects a notion of, which is what happened for me in both cases with you know a rape and with an eating disorder. And terminology is a weird thing. Like, you know, I don't feel super comfortable using the word rape to describe what happened to me because I know that there's such a spectrum of experiences and in terms of like the trauma and damage physiological and psychological harm like I don't think I'm very high up that scale so I feel like I'm like appropriating that word and then with eating disorders you know in this moment like I'm regretting being so lighthearted about how I was able to get out of it because that's not an option for a lot of people you know people die that way for me to be like this is not working I'm gonna stop is very different than someone who's dying and can't stop. And I think that's part of what has made talking about it be challenging. It's like weird imposter syndrome. <laughs> it's weird trauma imposter syndrome. I think the way that these are linked is the reality that our bodies like are very vulnerable. We're vulnerable to rape. We're vulnerable to this culture that doesn't take our physiology as seriously and doesn't emphasize the resources that us or the people above us can take to better understand it and support us. What the administration did right in terms of rape culture was not denying the fact that women are vulnerable and taking the steps to address it, even though they seemed really dramatic at the time, saying that we're going to shut down all frats. Not every single frat guy is a rapist, but it's contributing to the problem, and we're going to prioritize women's safety. There was no acknowledgement, despite all the women speaking up about cross-country running and eating disorders, that we were vulnerable. Without that acknowledgement, which is just true, and there's so much evidence, it's really hard to protect it.
Thank you once again for listening to Rearview. This podcast is created, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Claudia Schatz, and co-produced by Eliza Wilkins, who runs our social media as well. Our theme music was composed by Charlie Romano, and this episode's music was Water Cool Quiet by Blue Dot Sessions. Our visuals are by Sarah Pinsonow, Karen Shu, and Fig, and you can find links to more of their artwork on our Facebook and Instagram pages. If you have any questions, want to say hi, or have a story you'd like to tell, please write to us on Facebook or Instagram at Rearview Podcast. And also you can subscribe, write us a review, like us and follow us on social media, and share the amazing artwork that goes with each of our episodes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again in two weeks to bring you the final story of season two. They were like in my room screaming like, we have to go to Friendly's. And I was like, I have to go to Friendly's. And he was like, what's happening? Good day for all of us.